From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. This state has the fifth highest officer-involved shooting rate in the country. CPR News is investigating the causes and potential solutions. Then, from classics like Gone with the Wind... Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. ...to current Oscar picks like 1917... There's only one way this ends. Last man standing. Hollywood leaves its mark on more than the big screen, coming up the environmental costs of making movies from a CU film scholar. And don't even get him started on Titanic. Plus, plastic is interwoven into our daily existence. Quilts used to be made with the scraps of our lives, so why aren't we making them with what we throw away with this beautiful single-use plastic? A new art show in Denver takes on our complicated relationship with plastic after the news. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's not a list you want to land on, and yet there Colorado is with the fifth highest officer-involved shooting rate in the nation. A months-long CPR News investigation finds a resurgence of methamphetamine use is driving this, combined with easy access to guns on the street. CPR reporters Allison Sherry and Ben Marcus have been examining shootings of civilians by officers. We're going to take stock today of what they've learned, look at some potential solutions, and hello to you both. Morning. Good morning. Allison, you are CPR's justice reporter. You started this project last August. What prompted this effort in the first place? Well, in short, it was the shooting of Devon Bailey, a 19-year-old African-American in Colorado Springs. It brought some local attention to what had already been an issue in other parts of the nation, as I'm sure you know. You know, we have Black Lives Matter movements here, of course, but it had been several years since a police shooting was as controversial as Bailey. Yeah, what were the aspects of it that made it so controversial? Well, I mean, uh, you know, the body cam was released, primarily that it was, he was running away, he was shot in the back without pointing a gun or otherwise presenting any sort of visible threat to police officers. So our series just began with this question, right? Like, how often does this happen? How often does this happen? And what's the answer to that? Well, a grand jury determined that the shooting was legally justified under the state's fleeing felon law, which allows deadly force, even shots to the back, if an officer has reason to believe the person's committed a felony with a deadly weapon and represents a danger to the community. So we went back through six years of shootings across the state to see how often that law, the fleeing felon law, was invoked as the primary justification for shootings. And it discover, we discovered that it was really rare, 13 times out of 309 shootings since 2014. Oh. But while we're doing this, we find all kinds of other interesting information. So we're looking at, was the suspect armed? Were they not armed? What were they armed with? Were they on drugs? What kind of drugs were they on? How many uh, shootings are there per department? So we came out of this with a much richer explanation of officer-involved shootings. Okay, well, let's unpack some of that. I, I think we ought to talk about race, especially in the context of the Devon Bailey case. Um, just last week, I covered a forum on policing in Colorado Springs People packed the church where Bailey's casket had rested just six months prior, and folks in the audience were eager to hear from and really to confront the police chief who was on the panel. Race was front and center in this discussion. Here's Colorado College professor and Senate candidate Stephanie Rose Spaulding, who sat right next to the chief. If we cannot acknowledge that the history of policing in the United States has racist undertones to it, 
We are never going to get to a place of communal transparency and accountability with each other because we cannot, how can two walk together if we don't agree? What did your investigation find in terms of race? So whites are shot more often by police officers than Hispanics or blacks in this state. Um, But minorities are overrepresented. So Hispanics and blacks are shot at a higher rate than their level in the population. Um, But it was roughly equal to their level in the correction system. So to some degree, this is where officers are policing in these communities already. Um, Is that wrong? We don't really know where officers are policing, to be honest. They say they over-police these. They even admit sometimes that they police in these areas. But they're getting calls for service here. These are where they're patrolling. But we just don't know the level of data as to where they're moving and what they're doing. But we don't see a gross over-representation in the shooting numbers uh, by race. Let me just clarify. I should have said that uh, Stephanie Rose Spalding was with UCCS, not Colorado College. But it seems like there are holes in the data here, Allison. Yeah, and I, I, there is because there's not a lot of transparency in this data. Um, and I, I do want to say, you know, with with all respect with for the how people perceive policing in 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 Colorado and across the country, we only looked at shootings, and we didn't look at excessive force or anything like that. And it's worth noting too that one shooting is more than anyone, including most police officers, want to see. But Devon Bailey was just one of two African-Americans shot by authorities in Colorado Springs in six years we found in our database. That's out of 23 shootings, two African-Americans. At that forum in Colorado Springs, I heard community activists have a real hunger for more data to get a better answer to you know some of these questions. Here again is Rose Balding. There is a difference between just simply articulating what crimes are happening and how police interact with civilians. Um, And so being clear that this is what happened every time a weapon is drawn, every time force is utilized, all of that is necessary. But I also think in in extension, complaints against officers have to be a part of that data. And what happened with those complaints? How were they managed? How were they addressed um, is necessary. Beyond Race, your series indeed explored the influence of drugs and guns on officer-involved shootings and the rate here. You looked at some of the dangers that cops face on the beat and at uh, possible ways to reduce the number of shootings. I guess, what is the broader context here, like nationally, Allison? Well, nationally, um, I think it should be noted that the numbers are not tracked by any government entity. Um, And that was very striking to me as we were reporting this, is how little people know about their own problem. A thousand people a year are killed annually by law enforcement. Um, Nobody tracks that information. That number comes from the Washington Post, which has been trying to record every fatality in the country, much the same way we are at CPR News and other news organizations are in Colorado. They're trying to do it nationally. So when we say Colorado ranks fifth in the nation for the rate of fatal shootings, we that was calculated by Ben, and he looked at our shootings compared to other states in the Washington Post data. But, huh. but I think it's striking that no one tracks this, including the CDC, because you could make an argument this is a public health issue. This yeah. really is surprising, right, that the best source of data nationally on officer-involved shootings comes from a, a newspaper. Uh, luckily, they put that data online. They give us the raw file so that we can analyze it, see where we rank, look at the trends. But 
we're relying not on official statistics here for what is the highest level of force that a police officer takes to shoot somebody. And Allison's point that this could be considered a public health issue is interesting. I hadn't thought of it in that context. Uh, Okay, I know that you found drug and or alcohol use was behind a lot of these shootings. How did that even emerge? So as you're reading through these decision letters now, a prosecutor has to write a letter explaining why they did or did not charge a police officer with a crime. And so you get some detail as to how the shooting occurred, what was in their bloodstream from if there was an autopsy. And so we started to keep track of that, what drugs were in their system. And we noticed as we read through these decision letters that these crimes that had methamphetamine as part of them were kind of crazy, for lack of a better term. They were violent. They were long encounters. Uh, And so we started to see this emergence of drugs as affecting, and the research shows this, that people are six times more violent on methamphetamine than without methamphetamine. Is methamphetamine to blame in some of those cases? It's a little squishy because you have a tough upbringing that leads you to use methamphetamine. But we were seeing this, and that even surprised the police departments who deal with this on a daily basis because the statistics that are kept are drugs. Drugs. They don't tell you what kind of drugs. So if you look at opioids, we found very few opioids because there's like a sleepy cycle that comes with them. You're not out running the streets like you are on a powerful stimulant like methamphetamine. So methamphetamine might be having this ratcheting up effect that makes these encounters deadlier. Allison, what are the numbers? Well, yeah, I mean, and we're not just talking about, you know, two or three shootings here. We're talking about half of the 190 pe- 189 people killed in Colorado had meth in their systems. It's extraordinary. Wow. And that is a pattern that not even law enforcement had been aware of prior to this. They did not know. Okay. Nope. Uh, th- this has been a problem for some time. Um, Is there a resurgence of meth? Can we say how common the drug is right now? Ben, put some context around that for us. So overdoses and arrests, possession arrests in the Denver area have almost doubled since 2013. Um, And it used to be that homegrown labs uh, out in rural areas or in suburbs, you see it on the nightly news, they raid another lab where they're making methamphetamine here in the United States. Those are gone. Mexican cartels now just across the border pump this stuff out in industrial size quantities uh, to the point where the uh, U.S. attorney in Colorado, Jason Dunn, he said that the DEA had a major takedown of meth. And so they expected the price of methamphetamine to rise in the United States. That's how big the takedown was, the price did not change. So the amount of methamphetamine that's coming in, and it's not, you don't have to grow a plant for it. It's not a poppy plant. And so it's an industrial process that if you take down one uh, warehouse, they open another warehouse somewhere else. But bring us, Allison, from that warehouse, you know, (laughs) to the shooting. Like what what would be the trajectory that, that makes meth combined uh, lead to the you know potential for uh, an officer-involved shooting. Right. I mean, short in short, it's paranoia. So someone's paranoid from meth. They they feel like everyone's out to get them, um, and they buy a gun, or they get a gun from the illegal black market somewhere. We know we we have in our data that eighty percent of the shootings of some uh, the suspect had a gun. So most of these vast majority of these were armed. Okay. Someone was armed, and we also found that increasingly, and this number is growing every year, those on meth with guns they almost almost always died. That combination. Yes, that it, combination. It was particularly deadly. And when you look at uh, officer involved shooting rates by state, the Northeast has the fewest amount of officer involved shootings by far. The New York, New England. 
England area. They have the lowest rates of gun ownership, and they're more opioid states than they are methamphetamine. Methamphetamine's availability in the Northeast is very low. Mm -hmm. The states that have high rates of gun ownership and high rates of methamphetamine had the highest rates of officer-involved shootings. Okay, I found this fascinating, the connection to stolen cars. Ben, I know you want to talk about that. Yeah, so this came up, this was another thing. As you're reading through these letters, you see the kind of similar events over and over again. And stolen cars was the third most common reason that officers interacted with people in these shootings. Uh, And that's part because cars are a weapon. They can be a weapon. Mm. Um, And methamphetamine's connection to stolen cars. We found this all across the country. Uh, And we're told by insurance folks, people who specialize in this, that people who use meth will steal cars either to do meth in them or to try trade them for meth. Um, So you get a lot of cross currents coming together with stolen cars. And the number of stolen cars in Colorado has risen at the same level methamphetamine has and at the same level officer-involved shootings have. My goodness, it's such an intricate web, uh, all of this stuff that's involved in this. Allison, tell us about this case in North Glen. Yeah. And I mean, I think just to piggyback on what Ben just said, you know, I think that there needs to be some evaluation of how much police officers are focusing on stolen cars. And so I think that there needs to be some come to Jesus moments with police officers because there's such an intense focus on stolen cars. And not that we think people should just steal cars and not get away with it. But I do think we've seen so much of this connection between stolen cars and and officer shootings that we wonder, you know, some of the police departments that have the lower shooting rates have different approaches for stolen cars. And ah. I think that that's an, an interesting point. We're talking about cars that are 20 years old in yeah. some cases, a 1990s Saturn, and the cops will spend an entire day following that person around. And one of the most egregious cases in this, and it's this, it, it falls all into all of these categories, is this case in North Glen. There are two young people in their 20s. They were in a 20-year-old stolen car at 3 a.m. in a driveway. Police have been tracking this old car all day. They had a tracking device on it. They approached the couple. Neither had a weapon, and they both end up getting shot. The driver, Jeremy Patchek, died. His fiance, Serena Manella, is now paralyzed from the neck down. I'm not saying they should have given them a pass or anything like that, but what about a pair of handcuffs? If he was doing something illegal, can't you arrest him? Why did you have to shoot him? And that's the that was Jeremy Patchek's mother, um, Melanie. And I, I should note that this case resulted in what we think is the largest settlement for police excessive force in state history, almost $9 million. The vast majority of that is going into a medical trust for Serena's care because she's a quadriplegic. And I should also note that North Glen didn't disclose any of this to taxpayers, voters, anyone, until CPR News put in an open records request. Okay, but the fundamental point here is that auto thefts are something of a flashpoint and And it may be that law enforcement needs to reassess how they're handling that as it relates to meth and all the other factors. You two read uh, about and watched a lot of body cam footage from the police perspective in preparing this investigation. I'm just curious what kind of effect that had on you mentally. I mean, I have watched the Devon Bailey imagery. It continues to haunt me. It's a tough thing to watch. How was it to watch that during this reporting? I think that I always wanted to be a police officer. I had this fantasy growing up that I wanted to be a cop. And having watched enough of these body cams, I have to say that that job is extremely dangerous uh, and downright scary a lot of the times. And I just had no perspective on that until I watched these. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, just exactly that, you know, not only the body cam that we watched, but but the letters we read from the district attorneys from all these determinations were six or seven pages each. 
You know, the thing that struck me the most was how grim and how unpredictable the mayhem cops face every single day. I I talked to an Aurora police sergeant who was a first responder to the Aurora Theater shooting. Then his partner and his best friend got shot during a routine traffic stop right in front of him. Then about a year later, he came upon this horrible domestic violence call where a man was stabbing his girlfriend to death in the snow. And this is Sergeant Dale Leonard. That's the person I've talked to. This is what he, his, him talking about what these kinds of scenes do to you over time. I mean, this job is very corrosive, really is. So my goal now is just to keep my officers alive and try to make them make good decisions in bad moments because that's what we do. How many of these did you watch? And and do all police and sheriff's deputies wear body cameras now? Just curious. I would say we watched a few dozen, maybe up to 30 uh, body cams. I mean, the problem here is that there's about at least 20 agencies in our database. So they have an officer shooting in the last six years who don't wear body cams still, which was surprising to us, uh, means a key piece of evidence is left out. And in a lot of those cases, the family has a bunch of questions as to what actually happened. Just to put a finer point on that, they don't have body cams or they don't share the footage? Uh, they don't have body cams at all. They often cite cost. Uh, they say the cameras will come free, but then you have to pay for the video storage and the maintenance of it and everything. Oh, and then if they have body cams, is the footage always released or is that the discretion of the department? I think almost always always released. There may be some redactions in there, but I think we were able to get all the body cam footage we asked for. And it's not, I don't think um, for the most part, it's controversial that people wear body cams. Every police chief I talked to, every sheriff, every prosecutor was like, we would love body cams because the vast majority of these exonerate the officer. You see the violence in front of you unfolding. You see the guy waving the gun at an officer. So most of the time, it's good for police officers. Were there exceptions to that? Uh, Yeah. I mean, one that stands out is Andrew Byrd in Pueblo. This was one of the most questionable shootings we saw on body cam. Byrd was waiting inside a car. Cops pull up behind him. He tries to get away. As he's fleeing, cops shoot him in the head. He was unarmed. He wasn't driving towards any officers. And the body cam shows that, right? So the cop's defense was, oh, I thought he was rummaging for a gun. But that case resulted in a $600,000 settlement to his family. This is an interesting one because the, we talked to the attorneys on this case that got a $600,000 settlement for the family. They said that the officer was allowed to review the body cam before making his statement. And they said if this was a traditional criminal investigation, clients would love to be able to see the evidence before they make a statement. Mm. Um so that stood out to them, that he was allowed to kind of tailor to what was seen on the on the camera. Um, Allison, in one installment of your radio story last week, uh, you had a recounting of two officers who shot and killed people. What, what did they have in common, these two officers? Well, you know, we heard from Sergeant Leonard earlier. The other officer I talked to is Boulder Sheriff's Deputy Jeff Bronco. Both these officers have shot and killed people on duty. Both are struggling with various types of trauma that these incidents and high levels of violence on the job do. Um, So we found that officers have a very high rate of PTSD symptoms. So one in every five. And there's not a lot of research around this. So this is a fairly new field. Mm. Um, And it's difficult to get officers to even open up. Uh, Even Nick Metz, who's now uh, used to be Aurora's chief of police, is now going to get into kind of officer wellness. Uh, He admits that it's, it's been a difficulty in the profession to even kind of figure out the true scope of the problem. In conversations that I've had about PTSD in first responders, I think there's a sense of fear sometimes about speaking up, you know, that you're supposed to be somehow ironclad and unflappable. 
I think that's what makes the interviews that we were able to get with police officers so incredible. It's kind of a rare thing for them to not just open up, but to open up on microphone about um, kind of how harrowing these situations are and the mental trauma they endure. Okay, in the last few minutes of this half hour, what are some of the solutions that have been tried, you know, anywhere that might bring down the officer involved shooting rates. So when you ask experts, they say the same three things every time, time, distance, and cover. Time, um, distance, and cover. Okay. So if you can keep time on your side and have patience, now this is, assumes that there isn't a gun being waved around and there isn't an immediate threat. Um, but we've seen cases where the person did not have a gun, they had a sharp object of some sort or their fists, and the officers closed distance too quickly. Now, if I get too close to you and you have a knife, now you are deadly. If I'm 20 plus feet away from you and you have a knife, you're not deadly. I can set a, I can set a perimeter. I can have a strategic situation, uh, and so officers need to. Experts tell us have way more training on defensive tactics. They simply don't get enough, according to these experts. Anything you'd add, Allison, on that? Well, you know, we in our in our database in our six year study of shootings, we discovered this three county area in southwestern Colorado. It includes Durango that hasn't had a single shooting this whole time. Oh. And they, the, the attorney general, Phil Weiser, is actually looking at what they're doing differently to see if he could change all of police standards and training across the state to see if we should just mimic what Durango is doing. And he does he does a lot of, of what Ben just said. He stresses pause when dealing with volatile situations. The other thing I'll note is that the departments that out and out prohibit officers from shooting into cars, the shootings usually go down. And that's a, that's a policy that has sort of a best practice nationally. Again, back to this idea of the automobile being so central to this. Right. In Colorado Springs, where Devon Bailey was shot, some activists are clamoring for civilian oversight of the police. We have less than a minute here. Is there a sense that having an independent monitor, the type that Denver has, does anything, I mean, even for transparency, Ben? Uh, this is controversial. Civil rights attorneys will say, yes, we need an independent monitor statewide. We need some independent investigative authority to look at these things because the cops can't investigate themselves or law enforcement can't. But the prosecuting attorneys that we've talked to do not believe. They say they can manage these crime scenes and give a good judgment as to whether or not those shootings were justified. And they say that, hey, we face voters every four years. We're answerable to them. And so we're the ones who should handle these investigations. I'll say that in Colorado Springs, the police chief uh, has some reservations about civilian oversight. That's Ben Marcus, Allison Sherry, part of this team that looked into shots fired, investigations of officer-involved shootings. This is CPR News. Senator Michael Bennett is going all in in New Hampshire. He staked his presidential campaign on a February surprise, a strong showing at the first in the nation primary. I'm going to spend a lot of time here, and the, and the way I'm going to win it is by being in living room after living room after living room after living room. I'm Caitlin Kim with CPR News. As voters in New Hampshire take to the polls, we'll be on the ground to hear how Bennett is faring and how he stacks up to the other Democratic presidential contenders. Tune in to CPR News or CPR.org. The buzz after the Academy Awards is about Parasite. It made history as the first non-English language film and first South Korean film to win Best Picture. Other movies nominated for Best Picture include Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, 1917, Ford versus Ferrari. And these all share something else beyond being Oscar-worthy. They all took a toll on the environment, according to CU Boulder media scholar Hunter Vaughn. His book, Hollywood's Dirtiest Secret, 
is about the movie business taking a King Kong-sized toll on ecosystems and climate. Hunter, welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Why here. are you wringing the last bit of joy out of my life? This <laughs> way? <laughs> I'm sorry. It's uh, okay. Uh, okay, last night's Best Picture winner. I, I don't know. What kind of environmental impact does a movie like Parasite have? Um, actually, I don't know exactly how Parasite was made, so it depends on where it was shot, if it was shot on location, if it was shot in a studio. While I was watching it, it's the... Spoiler spoiler alert, I guess. Okay. Uh, well, hold on. Let's give someone a moment, if it's truly a spoiler alert, just so they can get to their radio. Okay, gotcha. Okay, um, go ahead. Yeah, so there's this big sort of flood, epic flood scene towards the end. I have no idea. I assume that was shot using lots of water that would have been taken from somewhere and then sent somewhere. It's interesting. You make a distinction between films that are shot on site Mm -hmm. and ones that are shot on a soundstage. Different environmental impacts. Help us understand that. Totally different environmental impacts. There are all of these incentive programs that bring productions either to different states and cities around the U.S. or to places around the world. And Hollywood productions go to these sites and they often disrupt the local ecosystems quite dramatically. And I imagine that there's just a lot of fuel burned if you're, you know, bringing in a whole crew somewhere. There's tons of fuel burn. There are lots of people involved. There's lots of transportation. There's huge energy dependency. Yeah. And I know that New Mexico, for instance, has just made a cottage industry of this kind of luring film crews. I think Canada has done the same thing, Atlanta and Georgia. And there's an ongoing like historical circulation. First, it was, you know, from like um, Wilmington, North Carolina to New Orleans to Detroit to Atlanta. Who knows where it'll be next? So is CGI the kind of savior of Hollywood and climate? In other words, if you aren't actually destroying a building, you're just doing it through graphics. Is that somehow better? Um, well, there's already a problem if you're, we're still celebrating the visual explosion of objects as our form of entertainment. Um, but oh, why? <laughs> I know. It's I, escapism. It, it is. And escapism is actually what allows us to perpetuate social and environmental injustice. Um, but in terms of the CGI question... It is really just a completely different network of environmental impacts. And so while we're not actually impacting analog objects... Right, you're not blowing up a car. Not blowing up an actual car, but we are running lots of data information through server farms that require energy, that require cooling systems, that... And the devices we watch them on require precious metals that are mined in certain ways and produce e-waste. So it's really just an entirely new global system of of environmental impact. That's fascinating. You're really thinking of this holistically. It requires a holistic understanding, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, there's nothing less sexy than a server farm, but that's absolutely helping uh, run all of the systems that you'd need to make movies in the way that we make them now. Yeah, they perpetuate our entire digital culture. Okay, in your book, again, the book um, is about Hollywood's dirtiest secrets, uh, its environmental impact. You you focus on the wave of eco-disaster like genre films in the mm-hmm. late 90s and early aughts. Uh, Twister among them or The Day After Tomorrow. Oh, oh my God. Lisa, uh, are you getting this on camera? The, this tornado just came and erased the Hollywood sign. The Hollywood <laughs> sign is gone. It's just shredded. 
I guess at least his you know, like Hollywood destroys itself. In <laughs> at least, right? Um, why do you think that genre was so popular for a time? And I don't think we see those same kinds of films now. Genres are really cyclical historically, and they provide a sort of um, screen symbolic mythology system through which we can work out very real social anxieties. Uh And so with the rise of visibility of climate change issues and extreme weather events, society as a whole was becoming far more concerned about climate change issues that we also didn't understand. And so that's what genres like this help us work through. And then they kind of disappear because we got our resolution and closure in the two hours we sat in the theater. Ah. Uh, okay, so they're a bit of catharsis. They help us process a moment. What are what are we processing now if it's not climate change? Uh, that's a good question, and I'm really sure not sure why we're not still cl- processing climate change. Um, I think that right now, and you you mentioned uh, parasite. Yeah. Uh, I think that we are processing problematics of social inequality. And I think that Parasite is a very clear, you know, allegory about class struggle um, and class inequality. And I think that right now, in terms of our political divisiveness, there's just a lot of confusion about issues of representation, of, of class difference, who stands for whom, who's actually working on behalf of whom, and how that's being twisted by political uh, rhetoric. I've only seen the trailer. I haven't seen Parasite yet. I, I'm loath to admit that on the radio. But uh, I have seen the trailers, and, and it revolves in part around a very wealthy family uh, and, and folks coming in from a different world. And so those those classes meet, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to rewind to the so-called golden age of Hollywood, Let's shall go. we? Movies like Gone with the Wind, Singing in the Rain. I walk down the lane with a happy refrain, just singing, singing in the rain. Okay, you mentioned the deluge in Parasite, and I have to think of Singing in the Rain, which needed rain. Oh, absolutely. On cue. Was environmentalism, I mean, I don't imagine it was really in the collective conscience at that point, and that classical Hollywood would have given it much thought. Is that a safe assumption? That's a safe assumption, and I try to make this point frequently. Um, Singing in the Rain came out 10 years before Rachel Carson's Silent Spring was published. This is sort of the launch of the modern environmental movement. Exactly, and so no one was thinking about it. So you can't really blame MGM or the studios for not doing what no one else was doing anyway. We're not being concerned about it. Um, but well, Hollywood has always been like the pinnacle of this culture of, of excess and anthropocentric uh, exploitation of resources. What do you know about Singing in the Rain in particular? Well, Singing in the Rain has this great mythology behind it. It's arguably the most written about uh, film in Hollywood history, but oh. every every write-up is this great celebration of Gene Kelly's genius. And, you know, it, it portrays it according to this Hollywood lore of magic. And the truth is that behind the magic, there are actually, like, days and days of rehearsal and water running and water running and water running. And they had to actually fight with or struggle against the popular use of water in Culver City where the studio was. So they filmed this in California. So they filmed it on a studio lot uh-huh. yeah, in California and they realized... Which is not known for its plentiful 
at least naturally plentiful water. No, I mean, it's actually <laughs> known as the, the the creation of Los Angeles is known as the, the, the product of a massive water war. If you've seen Chinatown, the, the film's totally about that. Um, and so they realized that they were losing the, the water pressure at a certain time of day because people were coming home at 5 p.m. and turning on their sprinklers. And so they realized that they had to shoot this thing before that. Which, you know, is just this tiny little, like, snippet in an assistant director's report. But it it, it, it tells, re- reveals so much about acknowledging that water is a natural resource that's finite and part of the collective commons and that it actually needs to be navigated. Was film, and I mean that literally, was film an environmentally intensive product? Yeah, we can keep, you know, extend the the conversation about water to this because the Kodak plant in Rochester, New York, which produced all of the raw film stock, uh, celluloid Uh stock for 80 years of, of Hollywood production, this was siphoning millions, literally millions of gallons of water off Lake Ontario every day and being used to rinse and produce the raw stock and then shoving like all of the, the the water runoff into the Genesee River, uh, which made Rochester, New York, the most carcinogenic city in the U.S. Wow. I have to think, though, that every industry has its kind of environmental and climate peccadilloes. You know, is let's put this into some context. Mm-hmm. How intensive is Hollywood writ large? Um, every industry definitely does have its environmental impact. Uh, some industries are regulated. Hollywood is very good at avoiding regulation, and that's part of you know why the study and why holding accountable is so necessary. Uh, relatively speaking, it's really hard to assess. There's a really good study that came out of UCLA, I think it was 2006, that compared it to other major industries in Southern California ah. and, and found that it's all of the metrics for environmental impact, greenhouse gas emissions, pollution, things like that, were all uh, kind of kept it on par with these other major industries like aerospace and hotels and textiles and semiconductor uh, production. But it sounds like you're missing a fair amount of data on this. There is not that much data to collect because there's hardly any transparency. And it's an industry that has this massive, like the product, which is a a film, has this extremely long life cycle and it involves so many people and so much of its impact comes through transportation and things like that, that it's really, really hard to calculate. Right. It's not all happening in one factory. I feel like at the end of movies in the credits, Hunter Vaughn, uh, we're speaking with this media scholar at CU Boulder who wrote the book, Hollywood's Dirtiest Secret, The Hidden Environmental Costs of Movies. I feel like I often see in credits some sort of green certification. That happens occasionally. Uh, You mentioned The Day After Tomorrow, which I believe was the first uh, major feature fiction film that billed itself as carbon neutral, which which means that it budgeted in like $100,000 to buy carbon offsets. Uh, So films are starting to do that. And then their internal regulatory bodies like the EMAs or the um, PGA Green, the Production Guild of America, has a green wing. And so they have a best practices guide that, that, that films can try to follow and then they can get little stamps at the end that are very similar to like no animals were harmed in the making of this movie. Do you put stock in them or do you think it's greenwashing? Um, I think that it is better than nothing, but I think that it's greenwashing. Yeah. Okay, let's talk Titanic. Iceberg, run ahead! Iceberg, run ahead! On the starboard! On the starboard! 
I think we can give away how this one ends, Hunter. Okay, um, your book focuses a lot on director James Cameron. We'll talk in a moment about Avatar. But what did you learn about the environmental costs of making Titanic? Titanic was this bizarre sort of... Um, like masterclass in uh, NAFTA economics. And it was lured to Mexico through financial or economic incentives. Uh, Mexico's film and media production industry was flailing at the time. And so they took the studio down, or they kind of built a makeshift uh, studio lot with these two massive tankers to reproduce the Atlantic Ocean, just in, off the, the coast of the Pacific Ocean. And in the process, they completely decimated a sea urchin population. They really, really harmed a local fishing community by the disruption of, of the local ecosystem. And yet James Cameron got the this great award from the Mexican government for employing Mexican media professionals in the process. It wiped out a sea urchin colony. Yeah. I mean, it was basically just massive ecosystem disruption. Wow. Yeah. Okay, and what about Avatar? I think of it as probably being pretty server farm intensive. It is very server farm intensive, but it was also very analog intensive in that they oh. it built itself as a fully the first fully digital feature film, but it actually, you know, had all of these analog steps of of like costume production, prop and set construction, things that you tend to think are not part of a digital of a CGI world. Yeah. So even the what seem to be the most advanced films can still be kind of bricks and mortar, for lack of a better term. Uh, that's a great term, actually, yeah. Do you think that stars should be talking more about this and making demands? I mean, I, if you're going to be a diva, be a diva for the environment? Absolutely, absolutely. It's becoming a huge part of star culture. And I think that, you know, for some celebrities, this is just an act of rebranding. And that's what stardom is as an industry function. Um, whereas certain stars, I think, you know, like Matt Damon's work with water.org or Shane, Shailene Woodley's uh, work or, or intervention um, at, at Standing Rock, I think that some celebrities walk the walk a bit more than others. Do you watch movies differently now? Because of this reporting investigation? I do, but I, I, I watch them differently, but I confess that I still watch movies. And I realize <laughs> that people still watch movies and we're going to keep watching movies. And so I'm not trying... My, my argument is not for a complete end to the movies, but actually just for more conscientious uh, and, and ethically accountable media consumption. Thanks for being with us, Hunter. Thanks for having me here. Hunter Vaughn, media scholar at CU Boulder and author of the book Hollywood's Dirtiest Secret, The Hidden Environmental Costs of the Movies. Speaking of environmental impact, recycling businesses are taking a hit after Miller Coors dropped the price it will pay for glass. The company says this change is more in line with industry standards, but it's making it almost impossible for some smaller recycling companies to operate. Here is CPR environment reporter Michael Elizabeth Sackis. In a warehouse outside of Salida, aluminum and tin products are dropped on a conveyor belt for sorting. Mickey Berry is the co-owner of Angel of Chavano Recycling. We've been here for over 15 years now. I've been in recycling all my life. My dad has a company in Iowa. As a kid, that was my summer job, to go sort paper. Barry says all the material he collects has an end user. Newspaper and phone books go to Penrose, where it's turned into insulation. Mail goes to Oklahoma and becomes toilet paper. And the glass? That goes to Rocky Mountain Bottle. It's made into 
Coors bottles. As does much of the glass in Colorado. Rocky Mountain Bottle Company, owned by Coors, is one of the largest bottle producers in the country, and they're not just for six packs of Coors Light. Colorado has a closed-loop economy for glass. It's used here, recycled here, and then reused here. But it's incredibly heavy to transport. Barry says that's the biggest challenge for rural recyclers. So it gets really hard for us to get a high market value for a clean commodity because our shipping rates are so high. Now Rocky Mountain Bottle has dropped the price they'll pay for Barry's glass from $60 to $20 a ton. He says that doesn't even cover the cost of shipping. And that's when we went to the county and said, well, we can't do this. Chafee County now subsidizes Barry's shipping costs. Robert Christensen is the county administrator. He says there's an expectation to have recycling in the area. It's either that or everything goes to the landfill. I mean, that's a simple way of looking at it. But we also want to start having conversations around other alternatives. The county had already been subsidizing Barry before the price change in glass. As that subsidy grows, Christensen says Chafee County will look into ways the glass could be used locally. He uses Alamosa as an example. The city didn't recycle glass because of shipping costs until they bought a glass crusher. They use the material for projects like ditches, foundations, and road covering. Every piece of glass is put to use. However, Alamosa collects less glass than Salida and a lot less glass than along the front range. Frank Roderick owns number one recycling in Arvada. He collects around 140 tons of glass a month from nearly 300 businesses. Roderick had sold glass to Rocky Mountain Bottle for 30 years when they cut their prices. I've had to self-subsidize this to keep it going because I didn't want to just see it go away. The future here is very, very much in question. Roderick's services have been free to incentivize companies to recycle. He says that will have to change if his business is to survive. We have gotten to a, a percentage of those that are on board, and I've continued the service to all of those who still haven't paid anything. I just don't want to see the stuff go back in the landfill. So why the price cut? In a statement, Miller Coors says it more accurately reflects what it costs to sort, clean, and process mixed recycled glass. Mixed recycled glass is what Roderick and Barry sell, but Rocky Mountain used to consider their product amber glass, which is a higher grade and desirable for creating the right shade of bottle. Their product was reclassified because in late 2016, a glass processor opened in Broomfield. Called Momentum, the facility can clean, sort, and crush 15 tons of glass every hour. The product, called Cullet, is high quality and color-specific. Momentum now sells 80% of its cullet to Rocky Mountain Bottle. John Layer is the president. Our customers are able to feed the cullet we produce for them directly into their furnaces without fear of damage to the furnaces or product quality impacts. Momentum can do what Rocky Mountain Bottle couldn't. Take glass from single-stream recycling and get it ready to be a new product. Before 2016, most of the glass collected along the front range was used as a landfill liner. Momentum changed that and now gets 90 percent of its glass from Denver, Boulder and Colorado Springs. Layer says that's changed the game. You know, if you're a business and you can buy something that's two or three times the quality for only a little bit more in cost, that makes a lot of sense to a lot of businesses. But he says it's not the only factor. He points to rising labor costs and fluctuations in demand for glass. Layer agrees that Rocky Mountain's new price better matches the global market. He was actually a little shocked to learn how much they had been offering folks like Roderick and Barry. My impression is they chose to do that to provide some level of glass recycling in an environment where glass recycling was nearly impossible. I just don't think they were able to sustain that. Rocky Mountain Bottle still works directly with more than 30 vendors, most of them small and in Colorado. The question is, can the small businesses afford to keep working with them?
I'm Michael Elizabeth Sackis, CPR News. Contact lenses, an Amazon Prime envelope, a polyester shirt. They may not sound like art, but Calliope Monios is turning plastic of all kinds into art. She has put together a show called The Plasticine with the Art Students League of Denver. It explores the material's complex role in our world. Sometimes plastic's presence isn't as apparent as you'd think, though. Monios walked through her exhibition with us on opening night. The room was packed, as you're about to hear. One of the first things we saw as we entered was a giant quilt of single-use plastic wrappers and labels. This is the piece she created specifically for the show. What I think is really cool about this is that if you think about it, archaeology is the study of people's trash. And so this quilt actually captures our society and a a snapshot in our society of a very specific time. Not just because it's plastic, but because of the trends that you see. Like, you know, you see there's gluten-free, there's vegan, there's... I mean, mean, even things as simple as the use-by dates, they date it. They date the quilt. My thing with single-use plastic uh, was that this material that we just use once and throw away is actually incredibly durable. And quilts used to be made with the scraps of our lives, so why aren't we making them with what we throw away with this beautiful single-use plastic? Sixteen artists contributed to the new show, but as I hinted, plastic's place in the art isn't so obvious in some of the other pieces. These are contemporary artists working with contemporary materials, and in today's world, that means plastic. So I specifically chose people who were not necessarily making artwork about plastic because I wanted to point out this blind spot that we collectively have where plastic doesn't register. We only think about plastic as bags and straws, but in reality it's much, much more pervasive and much more ubiquitous. We're standing in front of two pieces here. One is made with dental floss and the other is made with silicone contact lenses, but you might not necessarily recognize them straight off the bat. So these little blue spheres that look like marbles in a plastic bag that you would get at the store, those are actually constructed out of contact lenses. Oh, and then there's the plastic you wear. There are three pedestals in this exhibit that are conspicuously not artistic. <laughs> and and the reason why I included them was because I, as I opened my eyes to the huge array of plastic. I was I was surprised at how many different things you can make out of one type of plastic. So the classic example is polyester. I guarantee you're wearing some polyester. I certainly am. And there's a polyester shirt that my mother-in-law was going to give to Goodwill that I snagged. But when it's in packaging form, they refer to it as PET plastic. So like water bottles, plastic cups, egg cartons, berry containers, those kinds of things are also polyester. Now, this show isn't meant to demonize all plastic. Monias is going for nuance. So my work is about single-use plastic. And as I was collecting single-use plastic and washing it and caring for it, I thought, you know, it's really silly that we throw away this material that will outlast us for generations. And that's what, what got me thinking about different uses of plastic. There are certain types of plastic that stick with us for a long time. Plastic that's incorporated into buildings, or Teflon is another great example. The Teflon has really important machining applications, but we also use it for dental floss, which is kind of hilarious to floss your teeth once and then throw it away, and then in the environment it stays. 
Monios acknowledges it's unlikely we'll rid the world entirely of this material. Plastic is only 70 years old. We began manufacturing it in earnest in the 1950s. But in that short period of time, it has taken over in every application, in every sphere of our lives. And it's really, if you were to take it out of existence tomorrow, modern life would grind to a halt. So I have a geology background, and the current geological period is known as the Anthropocene, which is the period that is shaped by human activity. And there's a joke among geologists that it should actually be called the Plasticine, because what is the biggest mark that we're leaving on the Earth is clearly plastic. (laughs) Calliope Monayos, she created the Plasticine with the Art Students League of Denver. The show runs until March 15th. I'm Brian Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.